It's a human pacifier to try to understand the other side, even if you don't agree with it. And surprisingly, sometimes it'll just hit you like a ton of bricks. Ah, now I get it. Now I understand. I may not accept it or I may not uh, be willing to convert, but I can understand that person's point of view. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? and how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. With a long and accomplished career in politics, including acting as Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, Peter McKay is one of Canada's most widely recognized lawyers. During his tenure in Ottawa, Peter was instrumental in developing and shaping the criminal justice system in Canada as we know it today. In this episode of Of Counsel, Peter fondly reflects on his times as a prosecutor in his home province of Nova Scotia, his rationale for the transition into politics, the decisions made during his tenure at the Department of Justice, and what it accomplished for Canadian law. Peter also provides us a candid and passionate explanation of his present efforts towards combating human trafficking while working as a full-time lawyer, strategic advisor, and regulatory compliance counsel at the prestigious law firm Baker McKenzie. Peter's episode is a perfect way to end our 2018 launch year for the podcast. We've had great success, and this is all through our listeners. You've meant a great deal to us, and I can't thank you enough for being part of it. A sincere thank you from all of us here at Roba Shows. We would also like to extend a special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada, who joined us midway through 2018. With their support, it's allowed us to extend the reach of our podcast by traveling outside of Toronto to Ottawa and other areas of Ontario. The wonderful team at LexisNexis has shown real passion for what the podcast offers our listeners. Their commitment has ensured that their company philosophy towards teaching, innovation, and advancement of law is actualized through efforts like this. Our sponsored message today is once again brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis. Peter McKay is no stranger to being in the news. In the legal profession, information is the key to success. You have to know what's happening with clients, competitors, practice areas, and industries. The Lawyers Daily provides you with a dedicated feed of criminal news in the legal industry. Stay ahead of competitors by getting daily updates on important criminal laws and cases. Visit thelawyersdaily.ca and sign up for a 14-day free trial. Again, it's thelawyersdaily.ca where you can get a 14-day free trial through our sponsor LexisNexis who has generously sponsored this episode with Peter McKay. So sit back and enjoy our last episode of 2018 with Peter McKay. So in this episode of Above Council, we have a very special guest today and a unique guest. Uh, this is the first time we have ever interviewed a lawyer who is also uh, had a very uh, formidable career as a politician. Today, we are joined with Peter McKay. Hi, Peter. Hello, Sean. Thank you so much for participating. Um, I I could go on a great length of all your accomplishments, but what I want to get into first is is just what we ask a lot of our guests, and that is how you became a lawyer, and then what I'll ask following that is how that transitioned into politics. Um, right now, I understand that you are a practicing lawyer. That's correct. Uh, mostly uh, focusing on government enforcement proceedings, compliance matters, strategic advice to Canadian companies uh, doing business globally, and international companies doing business in Canada. Um, but before we get to where you are now in your life, can we go back a little bit? I want to talk about Nova Scotia and growing up there. Sure. Um, Happy to do that, Sean. <laughs> Okay, great. So and you have maritime roots, so I there's, do. A, there's a bit of a bond right off the bat. <laughs> and, and I appreciate being on your show. I think this is a really interesting broadcast. It's important, and it sheds a more human light on lawyers and maybe a little bit on politicians, I hope, after this uh, this encounter. I hope it does. And, you know, what we were talking about before, and uh, I, was, I, was tr- I was trying to say, um, is that 
One of the nice things about the podcast is it forces people to listen to perspectives. Uh, we live in a day and age where things are very uh, short. Things are 240 characters or less. And it's really hard to get into not just um, complex issues, but really the people behind them. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, from your perspective on things that, you know, obviously you've had a lot of controversy over the years with political policies. It's inherent in the game. But I, I, I'm really fortunate that you're given this opportunity for people to understand what goes behind that and perhaps compromises that need to be made and things like that. I think that's a really astute observation. Um, these are very divisive times, um, very polarizing, not just in politics, but on a whole range of issues. And that, that middle important discourse that uh, allows people to listen, take on board uh, other perspectives and, and maybe even change minds, critically important. And, you know, we sometimes are a little bit quick to judge other jurisdictions, most notably the United States, but it's coming here and, and mm -hmm. it's coming rapidly. And you, you referenced social media and uh, 140 characters. That doesn't allow for, in some cases, the more civil discourse that's necessary. Bumper sticker politics is notorious for that and demonizing the other side, mm -hmm. the other argument. You can't get away with that so much in a court. And judges, I think, have a very important role to play here in bringing back important factual, fact-based discussions uh, before we arrive at decisions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's before we get into that, because I, I really want to talk about that, and, and I think you have such a, an important perspective on that. Um, going back to Nova Scotia, um, your father was a prominent um, politician as well, also a lawyer. And uh, I wonder, which is, made me not want to be either. Like a lot <laughs> of kids, uh, I was not driven to follow, follow in my father's footsteps. Uh, loved my dad, and uh, he lived a very different life than, than I did. We grew up on a small farm in rural Nova Scotia. Uh, my dad started his career in, in law, uh, was a prominent defense lawyer, and was recruited by then Premier Robert Stanfield, who later went on to lead the federal conservatives, to run for office in 1971 in a by-election that was created by the appointment of a, of a local politician as a judge that created this opening. And so my dad, I don't think, had anticipated a law career either, or I'm sorry, a, a career in politics. He was quite early in his legal practice and building a practice. Uh, my grandfather ran a sawmill um, and uh, was a landowner and, and forester. Um, and, you know, was a, a Scottish immigrant to a part of Nova Scotia that's quite uh, well known for deep Scottish roots and Protestant work ethic and all of that. So politics was a bit foreign to, I think, my father's family, although they were always very attuned to community involvement, even community activism on certain issues. Same with my mother. My mother actually immigrated with her parents from Northern Ireland. Her dad was uh, a commander, an officer in the Navy, served in both wars, um, basically pledged that if he made it through the Second War that he was going to come back to Nova Scotia where he had spent much of his time in Halifax because of the large naval armada that had been assembled there during the Battle of the Atlantic. So he had this idyllic view of Nova Scotia uh, and became a blueberry farmer uh, <laughs> after a career in the Navy and, and having worked on cable ships around the world and said, uh, I never want to go back on the water, but uh, I want to work on the land. So my parents met in university. They uh, later moved to Pictou County from the Annapolis Valley. Uh, there are five of us, five kids. And um, sadly, like a lot of marriages that uh, involve busy lives and, and my Dad's life in politics, I'm sure, factored heavily into it. My parents split up when I was quite young. I was about eight years old. And so had a bit of a, a distant relationship with my dad, although I stayed very close to my grandparents. And my grandfather was probably the most influential person in my life growing up. Um, and seeing how he conducted himself in a very quiet, dignified way. He was almost like a a woods philosopher. He he didn't speak often, but when he did, it was <laughs> meaningful and impactful. Right. I want to ask you, like the the time that you spent in um, Nova Scotia. Um, it it seems you know you, you grew up in a relatively large family, five people. Um, it, what lessons do you think were 
learned there that were most valuable in your career as a politician and, and lawyer? Well, we started off talking, or you referenced my dad. My mother was probably the far more influential of my parents. She was um, somebody who was very resilient. Obviously, her life took a different turn. She went back to school, uh, got a master's degree in psychology, worked uh, as a clinical psychologist in both the private sector, later worked uh, uh, on contract, and worked in a university setting. She was also very international in her outlook. Uh, Irish tend to be so. And she would uh, invite international students to our home when we were kids. And so we, we learned about some of the most exotic and interesting places at a very young age directly from people who had come to study in Nova Scotia. And I, I watched how my mother conducted herself and, and overcame a lot of adversity uh, being a single mother in that era with kids was was challenging, mm-hmm. to be sure. There were certain judgments. She also was a, a very community-minded person, and she was involved in women's health issues. She volunteered uh, on a lot of local initiatives. Uh, she traveled to places like Costa Rica, which, you know, at that point in my life seemed, you know, on the other side of the world mm-hmm. and seemed very exotic. And so my mom, uh, at a very early age, was somebody who I looked up to and admired, uh, but I was fascinated by her uh, willing to, willingness to give. And even though she had a busy domestic life with, with kids and, uh, and her career, uh, always managed to balance so many different important aspects of community service and public service. And that was instilled in all of us that we were expected to give back. Clearly, you tried to emulate and achieve that in your own career in years um, that have passed. But uh, do you think that this is what drove you into law and into politics? Uh, Or was there something else going on that you decided to go to law school? Well, I think there's an assumption that it was predetermined that I was going to go into law and politics because of my father. But I think on reflection... It, it really had a lot to do with my mother and, and a desire to, you know, live an interesting life, but be able to give back. The decision to go to law school, I made, you know, midway through my university career. I thought that law offered a very diverse options uh, as far as career. And politics was not at all on my radar. I was not active in student politics. I was not a member of a party, essentially, until I ran. Although, you know, my father was a conservative and there was a natural affiliation on my father's side. My mother, less so. My mother, I suspect, at various times supported all parties. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear this because, you know, this is part of the, the deeper conversations we were just talking about. When you look back at your career, uh, I think a lot of people would assume that right from the beginning you thought, okay, I'm going to become a lawyer and a politician because that's the track that people take. And, and, and you, like many of our guests, it's very surprising to hear that that didn't come to be until it actually happened. It wasn't predetermined at all. In fact, I was quite content uh, practicing law. I, after articling with the Attorney General's Department in Halifax, went back to my hometown in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, um, which was the little town close to the farm, and opened a general practice. So did a significant amount of legal aid work, as you, you often do in a small town when you're starting off. Right. Uh, and a full range. You know, we did property estates. We did family law. So quite diverse, a, a great environment, an incubator to learn uh, in a practical sense. Nothing stays with you more than having a judge yell at you or a senior <laughs> counsel tell you you got it wrong. Uh, those lessons last a lot longer than anything you'll learn in law school. And uh, politics sort of popped up on my radar quite unexpectedly. Yeah, because the way you're describing it, it's almost like you're, uh, I, I, I think of your grandfather with this idyllic, as you describe it, uh, lifestyle of opening up a blueberry farm. You're just opening up this small law practice. And yet, uh, what you probably didn't know at that time, the years that followed, you become, you know, involved not on pol- just in politics, but nationally and now internationally with, with all the initiatives that you're doing. So um, was that all organic or was there, where did the plan uh, it, come It truly from? was. It, it happened uh, spontaneously in many ways. The impetus was a meeting that I had with Jean Charest around uh, 1996 
uh, as I said, I'd been working as a defense lawyer, but then I went to work in the Crown Attorney's Office. There was a precipitous, horrible event that occurred near our community in a place called Plymouth when the Westray Mine blew up. Mm-hmm. There were 26 miners killed. Uh, there was an enormous mourning period within the community. And as a result, fast forward, there was an inquiry. There were criminal charges laid against the mine owners and the company, uh, criminal negligence causing death. And this resulted in a criminal prosecution that took all of the senior crown attorneys from that local office to prosecute that case. As a result, I'd been doing a little bit of part-time work, uh, per diem work as a prosecutor, and a position opened up in that office. And so I became a prosecutor for the Crown and and did amazing uh, cases as far as a young lawyer. I mean, I was five years out of law school, and I ended up going to the Supreme Court of Canada, for example, on a case, a very narrow point of law involving uh, the Plain View Doctrine. But I did everything from shoplifting, a lot of impaired driving cases, Mm -hmm. uh, but first-degree murder cases Mm -hmm. and uh, transfers into adult court, which at the time were a bit of a novelty. And I should have indicated, I mean, one of the early experiences I had as a criminal lawyer was the realization that the, the legal system, in my view, and how we dealt with youth was not working well, was was failing and causing a lot of injustices for young people, for their families. Um, and there was a necessity uh, to make change. You could see it from the evolution of the Juvenile Delinquents Act to the Young Offenders Act to the Youth Criminal Justice Act, all of which were attempts to adapt the system, adapt to the charter, adapt to uh, ongoing precedent and changes in the law. But young people in particular, I think, were not being well served. And that bothered me. What do you mean by that? Is it, it Was it an issue uh, of rehabilitation or reintegration? Because one thing I've noticed as a defense lawyer, youth are uh, different. They uh, are, are a kind of group where if you feel like you've made a difference, you really have made a difference. And the type of people that you, know, you often won't see back, and it, other than a call to say, I'm now in university or I'm becoming a lawyer, Whereas adults, after two or three convictions, unfortunately, the recidivism rate is very high. And uh, But youth are different. So- I, I think that's absolutely right, Sean. I, I found that they, you know, obviously very impressionable, uh, very vulnerable, uh, not developed mm-hmm. in, in terms of their own worldliness and understanding of the system in particular. And I found that our justice system was very formulaic and that didn't account for this personal investment that has to be taken with kids. I played a lot of sports growing up, and I found coaching, mentoring, um, recognizing the necessity to invest in young people was one of the most important things you could do. I got involved in Big Brothers Big Sisters when I was at law school and developed um, a pretty keen understanding of kids at risk. My little brother was 10 at the time, and, uh, and, you know, in addition to the interaction I had with my own siblings, which was also formative, I, uh, I saw this kid who came from a broken home, uh, who was living in a, a community in Halifax that was riddled with crime. Uh, so he was exposed to drug use. He had witnessed two murders by the time he was 15 years old, um, was running with a group of other kids, which was going to inevitably put him in conflict with the criminal justice system, which it did. And sports was his savior. He was a very talented hockey player um, that put discipline and purpose in his life that he was lacking. And I would like to think to some extent I I helped him uh, and I was there for him. And that, more than anything else, um, gave me a very early understanding of how important taking the time to understand a young person and try to guide them in a way that will show them other options and give them a different path. I mean, if we can do that in our criminal justice system, 
the remarkable impact that that would have in diverting people away from a life of criminality, a life of dysfunction, mental health, uh, addictions, and and quite frankly, dependence uh, on the system. There's perhaps no uh, greater impact that we could have if we make those early investments. So what advice would you give to a younger prosecutor who's trying to balance, obviously, protection of the community, but also trying to make sure that these types of youth don't go forgotten and are, are dealt with appropriately? Well, that's a very good question and, and a complex one. I'll, I'll say this. The, uh, the prosecution services across the country are under enormous pressure, as is legal aid. And one of the big failings, if I can put it that way, is that they're, they're overworked, overloaded, and they don't have the time, perhaps, to make the early investment in decisions that might lead to diversion as opposed to pursuing a case through the criminal justice system. As I said, I, I saw it becoming kind of formulaic from both the legal aid side and the, the prosecution side. You, you'll re- recall the term alternative measures, mm-hmm. which was all the rage in the 90s and early 2000 when I was practicing. And it, uh, I think, had it partly right. We have made, and maybe we'll get to this later in the interview, we as a government, and, and when I was at the Department of Justice and Attorney General, uh, brought in a Victim's Bill of Rights. Right. And that was the other real problem that I saw in our justice system, is that we were re-victimizing people in a way. We were not giving them the requisite information. We were not sharing with them some of the decisions that were taken by the Crown and decisions that were obviously taken in court that were perhaps beyond their understanding. And simply churning out people who felt very disgruntled, disappointed, let down by their experience in the justice system, that has implications. That doesn't make people want to testify or be witnesses or even if they're the victim, participate in the justice system in a way that is functional, that is necessary. It makes people not want to do jury duty. Right. It makes people look away. And and it, it ties into being a good citizen, being a good Samaritan. Right, and, and the undertone to both of these issues, dealing with um, victims' understanding of their rights and involvement in the justice system and also dealing with youth, to me seems to be an issue of uh, lack of understanding and lack of communication to the general public about how our justice system works and how we engage in it as a citizenry. So do you have any ideas on how that could be improved through uh, whether it's judges or law societies or just lawyers? You know, I, I'd like to think we're contributing to that right now, but but how can we get the message across larger? Because it's very easy for society to just dismiss uh, all of this and say, well, who cares what the criminals are doing? Who cares what these, you know, young people are doing because they're a loss um, and I'll never be a victim of a crime, so it doesn't matter to me either. Well, at the risk of oversimplifying it, if you can prevent criminality, Mm-hmm. at its earliest stages, if you can <clears throat> encourage people to uh, participate in the justice system in, in meaningful and positive ways, I think it, it strips away some of the malaise, some of the negativity, some of the public cynicism about our, our criminal justice system in particular. Uh, you mentioned judges. Judges absolutely have to be involved in this conversation. And I think we have rightly or wrongly, uh, put judges on pedestals and isolated them in ways that it's hard to break through the silo and have that discussion. The justification always being independence, independence. Mm -hmm. And And I get that. I completely understand that. But with the evolution of the law, particularly technology, and in particular, what we have seen in some of the, the cyber crime that is now pervasive mm-hmm. uh, exploitation online is exploding in the city of Toronto and, and other communities around the country. It, it's borderless. It's uh, intrusive. It's in your child's bedroom if they have a device in their hand. It's, it's alarming for me as a parent, but, right. but as somebody who cares deeply about everybody's kids and, mm-hmm. uh, and what's happening out there. So, you know, again, it, it's, it's a very complex and challenging issue, but it, it can be addressed. It also inevitably comes back to resources, and it, it inevitably comes back to some of what I would call the structural supports that are now in the system that we could still improve. Victim services are amazing in terms of their ability to help 
bring about, a, you know, if I can put it this way, a better experience for those who find themselves through no fault of their own in the justice system, either as a victim, as a witness, and, and sometimes ancillary to criminality as a person who gets caught up in either the moment or, like my little brother, got pulled into a, uh, an experience that involved going into somebody's garage and mm-hmm. stealing roller skates or something. That sure. would, just as a child, uh, with peer pressure, with the, the support that he had at home or lack thereof, it was, uh, and, and the environment he was in, it was almost an inevitability. And so if you can address some of those experiences early on, uh, I come back to victim services, but also youth child advocacy services. That has been a relatively new construct in our justice system that to me is magic. It is absolutely remarkable the impact that this has on victims in particular, particularly those who have been victimized in a sexual and violent way, most often by a person known to them and very often a family member. Child and Youth Advocacy Centers now exist, I believe, in 36 communities across the country. We have to double, triple that number. One question I have for you um, before we return to that, because I know you've done a lot of really uh, amazing work recently in human trafficking initiatives and, and dealing with the very issues you're talking about. But one thing that I've noticed lately that I didn't notice at all, and, and I don't think you ever engaged in it uh, as, as a, a minister of justice or attorney general, and I admire that, is there seems to be more latitude or more willingness to criticize specific decisions that are coming down from the court. And the reason I say that is if we're talking about building confidence in the justice system and engaging people, whether it's on the side of the accused or the victim, uh, it seems to be there's a common thought that no matter what happens, the justice system is going to let them down. And do you see a need for politicians to kind of quell that type of rhetoric on both sides? I do. I mean, rhetoric on both sides on, on a whole myriad of subjects uh, seems to be, you know, careening along the cliff and people are, are uh, unencumbered uh, to say anything at any time about anybody, including judges. Mm-hmm. And, and judges, having said earlier, are isolated in some ways upon their appointment because of social media. You know, it's fair game. Anybody can say anything. Um, libel laws are not enforced. It's destructive and corrosive over time. Politicians have always been fair game, but, you know, their families shouldn't be. It should be, you know, everybody calls for respect. And, you know, I I did my fair share of heckling in the House of Commons. But there are things that have to be self-governed. And if if we can get back to that more civilized discourse that I mentioned, I think we'll all be better off. Judges, I think, by engaging with groups and representatives and taking part, as they do currently, in the education of the public, but also educating themselves about the rapid changes that are occurring. Because the danger, through no fault of their own, judges sometimes are, are withdrawn and, and pull back from some of the interaction that they used to have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and therefore, it, it does create a bit of a, a gap, a lack of understanding on some issues, particularly technology. I certainly see the necessity of that to maintain independence and, and, and things that later up could come back to haunt them. But uh, I wonder these days if there is a certain positive obligation on the judiciary to engage more because it's simply not going away. And whether they like it or not, they're going to wind up on a Twitter feed somewhere. Well, that's right. And, and the information that uh, and, and the decisions themselves are far more available and far more widely read and therefore subject to discussion, mm-hmm. criticism, that's fine as long as it's within the bounds of, of being respectful or thoughtful. And that takes more than, you know, a, a three-line um, criticism. It's the anonymity, I think, that emboldens a lot of this type of criticism and rhetoric that you're referencing. When you were looking at it from, you know, your, your role, particularly as Minister of Justice and Attorney General, there's a big difference between criticizing it, criticizing a decision as a politician and, and a person uh, who isn't a politician, as I see it. Um, uh, I've always thought there's somewhat of a fiduciary duty to maintain that confidence in the public, uh, uh, confidence in the justice system. Um, would you look at things differently before you would, um, I guess you never did that, I, that I'm aware of, but 
do you not think that there's there's a sort of a, a moment of reflection or hesitation before commenting on a, on a judicial decision from a politician's point of view as opposed to a layperson's? Oh, sure. I, I think you, it's emotion. It's very often raw emotion. I mean, these are issues that are deeply personal, whether they affect you directly or not. Right. I mean, we dealt with issues pertaining to assisted suicide, assisted death. Um, the prostitution laws were struck down by the Supreme Court during my tenure at, at the department. We had Issues, as I said uh, earlier, that affected victims across the country, uh, these issues tend to invoke mm-hmm. very emotional responses. And so the, the sober second thought, you know, the old adage about sleep on it before you comment on it, I think is, is wise beyond words. And in particular, when issues are still in play, so in the immediate aftermath of a decision, that is where I find the lines are getting crossed increasingly. A jury decision comes down. Somebody tweets about a jury decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody makes particular political commentary about these subjects for obvious reasons. And so I do think that serious reflection is necessary on some of these far-reaching important issues. But I come back to the timing where jury decisions or judges' decisions are just rendered and there is an immediate visceral reaction or a political reaction that can have far-reaching implications. It's, it's very dangerous, quite frankly, in, in my opinion, and can cause unintended consequences that clearly can have a, a very real uh, undermining role in public confidence and so it, it seems at times that we're entering this phase of anything goes. And as you alluded to, politicians have to do their part. I mean, the beauty of democracy, uh, and I'm a big fan of democracy, is that the people ultimately get to decide and they uh, can render a judgment. You have to reapply for your job if you're a politician. And sometimes even if you're doing a good job, you know, the public are tired of your face. That's not the case with judges. And so they're, they play, importantly, a very different role, uh, a, a longer-term secure role. But I think understanding is needed on both sides. There has to be a, a respect for the role of one another, the executive branch, government, and the judiciary, but also uh, perhaps a better delineation of those roles and uh, judges like politicians should not be immune in all cases from criticism. They're human. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make errors in judgment too. Right. Uh, that's why you have dissenting judges and appeals. The difference being, though, the elected official has to go back and face the people. And that renders a much higher standard of accountability, in my view. Uh, I'm not suggesting we go down the road of the American system and have elected judges. But that has to be somewhere factored in to decisions. And, uh, you know, we can talk about some recent decisions and and how they've, I I think, impacted people's faith Mm -hmm. in our system and and trust and and level of confidence. Right. Yeah. And we've we've talked about them before in the podcast, particularly commentary on uh, jury decisions. Um, uh, You know, I I was very... um, uh, vocal about that, uh, the inappropriateness of that, and what came from that. I, I want to, before we leave um, into perhaps discussing that, I understand recently through conversation of a colleague of yours, Chris Burkett, that you were before a court just the other day uh, intervening uh, with him on on something. Uh, what did it feel like to sort of get back? Uh, I'm sure this isn't the only instance, but I'm just curious, coming from the role as Minister of Justice, Attorney General and this long career in politics to sort of donning the robes again and making submissions before the court. You know, Sean, it felt really good. And, and <laughs> I, uh, I've been waiting for some time for the opportunity to do that. Um, in fact, when I was at the department, and, and it's happened rarely, I guess, but it has happened where a justice minister has gone before the court. And I was looking for a case in which I might do that. Uh, but like a lot of things, we ran out of runway and, and uh, my staff were very nervous about that too. <laughs> Uh, but it felt good. That that particular case, without revealing too much, um, dealt with mandatory minimum penalties, which I know have been a controversy 
there's over 50 in the criminal code. They've been around as long as the criminal code. I think there's some who like to ascribe motives to certain governments or certain philosophies about mandatory minimums, but they've been around a long time. And again, at the risk of making this too uh, simplistic, there is a blazing red line, in my view, when it comes to violence Mm -hmm. and sexual violence, particularly against our most vulnerable citizens. And so mandatory minimum penalties are a way to put a floor uh, under certain types of offenses in terms of society's condemnation. Um, Deterrence and denunciation still are an important part of our justice system, as is rehabilitation. And all things being equal and in balance, that has to be considered when sending a message that certain type of behavior will not be tolerated. Uh, Firearms are a big problem in this city. And yet some of the mandatory minimum penalties that we as a government put in place, and and I had a hand in it at justice, uh, I feel were appropriate, were necessary, and were constitutional. There's a, a big branch of the Department of Justice that dedicates its time solely to reviewing legislation to determine its constitutionality. Do they always get it right? Absolutely not, Uh, but nor do the courts. And so to reference this particular case, it it dealt with child prostitution, frankly, and bringing young people into a horrific life of abuse. And in this particular instance, two young women were recruited out of a safe home in this city and were about to be trafficked. Uh, The individual accused, Uh, was caught, convicted, went to appeal on the sentence that was imposed because there was a mandatory minimum that would attach, and it was struck down. And one of the decisions that I must say I, I single out for attention is the newer decision, which created uh, this construct of reasonable hypotheticals. So the judge now, by that precedent, goes well beyond the facts of the case and into this esoteric philosophic contemplation of, is there taking a hypothetical scenario to the furthest extreme, a scenario where this law might be deemed inappropriate? So, I mean, that's an interesting exercise But I think it can result in some injustices that, again, leave the public feeling somewhat cynical and leave people in the justice system somewhat cynical. I've I've talked to a number of prosecutors in particular, but others who have run up against this relatively new phenomenon of reasonable hypothetical that came out of that case, which ironically dealt with a mandatory minimum penalty for a firearm offense here on Jane and Finch, where someone dropped a restricted weapon, automatic weapon, while being pursued by the police. And much of the discussion in that decision had nothing to do with the facts of the case, but could an elderly person who had improperly stored a firearm that they didn't know was restricted be convicted of an offense that would have resulted in an injustice? Sure. But I would suggest that there are also safeguards where the prosecutor would make a discretionary decision as to whether to pursue, in in the case of a hybrid offense, a summary or or a indictable, or to pursue it at all in in a case where there was de minimis, where there was really circumstances that wouldn't warrant uh, a prosecution in the public interest. Another way to, to deal with it, looking back, and, and thinking more broadly now outside of the, the realm of politics and the cauldron of the Department of Justice uh, would be to put in statutory exemptions or to have built in a, an escape hatch, if you will, where there is still some discretion. So you can have a mandatory minimum, but say, you know, if there is a certain factual scenario try to anticipate what those might be and uh, and then give the judge back some of the discretion. Because it it's deemed, at least in public discourse and, and in the papers sometimes in, in media, as this power struggle between parliament and the judiciary, mandatory minimum penalties. And, and it shouldn't be. Uh, right. there, there should be a way forward. I think that's really insightful. I mean, um, I, obviously, there's a lot of controversy over 
mandatory minimums. And, you know, the, the reasonable, reasonable hypotheticals at times do come to light. Uh, the challenge that the courts face, as I see it, is there is no escape hatch. And so without that sort of statutory exemption to say, well, this is one of those exemptions that if imposed, it would bring the administration of justice into disrepute, for example. Sure. Uh, it doesn't allow the judge to do anything other than engage in the framework that's set out in, in Neuer. And as I recall the case, that was a case where the facts were accepted in the end that this young man had just picked up a gun and, and was playing with it and taking a Facebook photo stupidly and, and now subject to this mandatory minimum. So, uh, but that's kind of the struggle is that if it's an all or nothing position, I think that's something I wish in retrospect may have been considered, but but there's obviously political fallout to that too, because then the rhetoric turns into, well, why is it exceptional? And right, yeah. and and you know you get people line up along their partisan lines, and you know conservatives are traditionally deemed as the law and order party who want to hammer every nail. Um, I, I you know look back over some of the justice ministers who preceded me, including Anne McClellan. Uh, who I, I was her opposite number or her critic while I was in Parliament for years. Uh, very compassionate, very smart woman, came from academia, also a Nova Scotian, uh, which I used to remind her. Uh, but people like Raina Titian, Kim Campbell, even, you know, Justin Trudeau's father mm-hmm. uh, was involved in putting mandatory minimum penalties in the criminal code. And they go back to the very origins, as I said before. I mean, first-degree murder. Uh, is a mandatory minimum sure, penalty, right. other serious violent offenses. And, you know, another consideration uh, when it comes to the the imposition of penalties, the meeting out of, of appropriate penalties, uh, unlike the United States, where they have in some states this three strikes you're out, our, our system doesn't emulate the American system. We get inundated with Canadian television, or, sorry, American television that sometimes creates this impression that our system is is uh, is exactly like the American system. It really isn't. It's quite different. I think much more thoughtful in many ways. Uh, it lends itself more to judicial discretion. However, I, I come back to my own view that Politicians and the elected branch, the executive branch, have an obligation, perhaps arguably the highest responsibility to protect society and protect our most vulnerable. And for certain types of offenses, particularly those involving children, uh, I think we have to up our game. We brought in a criminal code amendment that dealt with the non-consensual distribution of of intimate images, which was in response to a, a horrible set of facts and and the tragic death of a young woman named Ritea Parsons in Nova Scotia. And there are many others uh, where a child was bullied, sexually abused, images taken, shared amongst the world, uh, because when they're online, they're they're out there. The Rena Verb case is another one out of British Columbia. There were many, many cases where the law had not kept up to the type of criminality that was happening online. My uh, my children are very young, but they're already they're they're being drawn into this world of of online fascination, and it's a wonderful thing for education, for connectivity. It's also a scary thing because there's a big, dark, uh, deeply disturbing part of internet activity: the dark web and luring, child prostitution, the criminality. You you can. You can buy anything online, including a child. It's uh, it's beyond the realm of most people's understanding. And many just turn away from it because it is so troubling and, and disturbing, but it's there. And, you know, IP companies, technology itself have a lot of responsibility in this world, but so does the law. And I'm not instinctually for more regulation. But in this particular instance, I I think we have to make some adjustments to protect people. Right. So, you know, applying your perspective, not just as Minister of Justice, but also I know you've been very involved in um, national security and international relations. Uh, Do you think that we're falling behind of where cybercrime is is right now and where it's going and protecting our public, um, our citizenry? That's my impression. Although I must say, I have the unique experience of having seen some of the defenses that we use. Very few people in Canada, let alone in government, 
knew about Communications Security Establishment, CSE, which is a branch of the Department of National Defense, came out of CSIS, came out of our national security apparatus, and that's their sole purpose, is to defend against online attacks, mainly targeting government departments, but also commercial interests, banks, our financial sector, and disturbingly critical infrastructure. There are millions of efforts to crack into those systems and change for nefarious reasons, outcomes. And so we did make certain adjustments to legislation that allowed for what are called effects in the cyber world to be more proactive, if I can put it that way, in defending Canada's interests, but also the shared interest of our allies, the Five Eyes community, Mm -hmm. uh, UK, United States, Australia, New Zealand, and our allies who share values, who share the, the same desire to protect and promote democratic values. And, you know, therein lies another very prevalent issue is meddling in elections and manipulating outcomes. So to come back to your question, this is a very real problem. Uh, I am confident in saying that we are doing pretty well compared to some, but we have to continually employ some of the very best minds, which we're currently doing and recruiting, to ensure that we are uh, protecting our country's interests in the online world. And, And doing so also requires this international component of sharing information but it's volatile and it and it's rapidly changing and we are continually exposed to new threats from state and non-state actors so it's it's a fascinating world it's it's an area that is well beyond what we would consider traditional threats of missile attacks or a conventional land attack or even terrorism but the the scary reality is that we have a lot of and, and necessary parameters legal parameters to protect people's privacy, to protect everybody's interest within the law. Criminals, terrorists, uh, notorious actors play by no rules. That's, again, a penetrating statement of the obvious. And so that's what we're up against. That's what the police are up against every day in a, in a conventional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, before we leave this area in, into a more uh, light topic, um, what would you say to uh, citizenry that are concerned about you know, uh, violations of their privacy relative to these broader protections that are going on? Not, not in a specific way, but in a general sense, what would you say to quell those concerns? Well, I'll say as a former defense minister and justice minister, if you're not involved in trafficking in human beings or illegal drugs, guns, uh, stolen property, if you're not uh, using cyber activity for an illicit, illegal purpose, you have nothing to worry about. They don't have the time or the resources to tap into your phone when you're walking through Pearson Airport to find out if you're cheating on your income tax or your spouse, and they're not interested. Uh, So there's a bit of mythology and paranoia about the state or the deep state or the fact that the government is spying on people. They're not. They're just not. I guess the conundrum is you can't respond because in responding you're sort of revealing things that you wouldn't want to reveal. That's correct. And they they still have, we still have uh, a system of law that requires warrants, that requires judicial oversight. So I come back to the important role that the judiciary play in our national security apparatus. Mm -hmm. Our our judges are required and and often brought in both before and after the fact to put a, a stamp of approval upon government action and security action in particular that the public need to have faith in. But complete transparency is difficult on, on this subject. Moving to advocacy, because you've, you've played um, a very important role as both a lawyer and a politician. What are some things that you see uh, commonly woven between the two as far as persuasion goes? And, and you know, you've, you've dealt with persuasion in, in micro sense in this particular case, in this particular individual, but also in a macro sense in trying to unify politicians across the way in in the spectrum, but also even within your own party? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that law is a tremendous incubator for politics, but for a lot of different careers, because it forces you to consider other opinions, other perspectives, other arguments. It's it's a very intellectual exercise in, in some of the gymnastics 
of unpacking and understanding what a particular case or a particular piece of legislation or perspective may mean. It also requires sometimes looking around corners and looking well down the, the runway on, uh, on the horizon as to what the impact will be. And that's where, again, not to overemphasize it with the judiciary, but sometimes short-term thinking factors into a decision that can have a, a catastrophic impact, a long-term impact that maybe wasn't intended, but could have been seen, um, mm -hmm. and at the risk of stirring a controversy, you know, our natural resources and pipeline decisions right now is an example of how we are quickly becoming uncompetitive and unproductive in the in the world of, of energy. And that's, you know, that opens up an enormous subject matter. But advocacy, I think, is such an important part of not just our justice system, but society. It's certainly a big part of our parliamentary system, which comes from the British, the Westminster system of, uh, you know, debate and uh, sparring. And, you know, sometimes it's ugly and it, it, and it appears hyper-partisan, but it, it does allow for a release valve and it allows for the exposure of good ideas over pure rhetoric. And the real work of Parliament on reflection happened much more in the committees than it does on the floor of the House of Commons or at any press conference, because that's where I think the real thoughtful exchanges occur. And there's more interaction with the public because you have witnesses appearing. And, and, and that makes for good policy. And that helps to identify some of the, the blinders that politicians or judges might have, because it it allows that information to enter into the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I appeared um, before the Senate and uh, uh, committee standing committee on, on some of the cannabis issues recently, and I was really surprised uh, how uh, civilized it is. It's very much like a courtroom. Everyone puts their positions forward, questions are asked and answered in a very civil way, which is very different and, and starkly different from what you see on a question period. Absolutely, which has become more and more theater. As soon as you introduced cameras into the House of Commons, it mm -hmm. became... Theater. I remember a very early experience in Parliament, Sean, when um, I was elected in 97. Uh, Jean Charest, then the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, asked me to be his house leader. I, I didn't know what a house leader was. I, I mean, I immediately hit the books and started studying parliamentary procedure and Beauchesne's rules. And my approach and demeanor in parliament my point of reference was being in a courtroom so i would address the speaker as if he was a judge it was very formal very static and after a couple of weeks Charest, who was very experienced and had been in parliament for over a decade pulled me aside and said look i, I know what's happening because i did the same thing but you have to be more animated this is not a court of law you're speaking to the whole country and that was a bit of a, a jarring statement to, to hear but you know I, I understood what he was getting at that you had to be communicating in a different way uh, more passion more emphasis perhaps on on getting your point across not just in that chamber but out to the general public what's what's um, one really valuable skill you've learned to uh, apply when dealing with individuals who are so far away from your position, you know, and I, cause this has a lot of application to lawyers, you know, as a defense lawyer, we're sometimes speaking to a crown who is just very far removed from where we want to be and vice versa. And I'm sure this happens a lot in politics. Is there, is there a trick or skill that you've learned that maybe helps engage a more meaningful discussion rather than a shutdown of conversation? Well, I mean, sometimes it comes to that. Sometimes there is just a stepping off, moment where you realize that you're either going to have to try the case and there's there's no ability to find common ground. Um, I find that in those situations, you know, the best remedy is to take a little bit of time and it's cliche, but put yourself in that other adversary's position. Try to deeply understand where they're coming from or why they may have that belief or that position um, strongly held and and then look inside yourself and see if there is compromise that can be made uh, the, the passion that you take to work with you every day in in any walk of life 
um, sometimes can can be blinding. You 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 simply have convinced yourself. And again, I, I think back on you know some very early life lessons that I learned from my mother. She was she was an infinitely judicious person and would take the time to explain you know whether we were being disciplined or whether we were being told we we couldn't go to that party or couldn't participate in that activity she'd sit us down and 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 talk that is an old adage of course even of winston churchill it's better to jaw jaw than war war it uh, it's a it's a human pacifier to try to understand the other side even if you don't agree with it and surprisingly, sometimes it'll just hit you like a ton of bricks. Ah, uh, now I get it. Now I understand. I may not accept it or I may not uh, be willing to convert, but I can understand that person's point of view. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a younger lawyer? And there's lots of them who want to get into politics, who want to follow a similar career and maybe even one day become Attorney General of Canada. Don't get boxed in. I, I think uh, a lot of people do see politics as a spring or law as a springboard to politics. And um, I think it's having as diverse an experience as you can. Uh, I highly recommend volunteering and getting involved in your community. Uh, highly recommend, you know, not, not to suggest you dabble because law, I think, is becoming more and more specialized. But uh, don't think that there is any one blazing path that'll get you to politics. I think it was Bismarck that said politics is the one profession for which no prior experience is required. You you can come from any walk of life. There's probably fewer lawyers now in the Parliament of Canada than at any time. Mm-hmm. And that's positive. That's reflective of, of society, which is what Parliament should be. It should be the face of Canada, not only in terms of professions, but diversities, sexual, sexual orientation, all of that is uh, is really back to who's the best representative for the community and who will speak for those community interests and and those community issues that that matter so law is is a is a wonderful wonderful training ground because you're involved in so many timely and important issues you're dealing with controversy and and you're often in an adversarial role you're also dealing with by nature of the way that our justice system works, uh, many different aspects, cross-cutting aspects of society. You're dealing with administration. You're dealing with rules and regulations that are part of our everyday life. You're being asked to sometimes unpack and, and detangle very complicated issues and try to put them in more common parlance and, and language that people can understand. That's part of being a good lawyer, too, is translating, uh, being able to sort of put things in terms that, uh, that make sense to people. And I, I think that also helps in politics. You've, you've done so much because you had a long tenure in politics um, and, and as attorney general. But is there one particular uh, piece of legislation or effort that you're proud of that's had lasting power that you, you really feel fortunate to be part of? I think the Victims' Bill of Rights is one that comes immediately to mind because it it answered the mail on some of the issues that I experienced very early in my tenure as a lawyer, both as a criminal defense lawyer and a prosecutor. Uh, It put victims back to me in a more advantageous position. We used to talk about making our system more victim-centric and trying to undo the harm or or at least put the person back in the position they would have been had the crime not occurred. That's an impossibility. But the Victim's Bill of Rights, to the extent that it's respected and enforced, is a genuine effort to do that, to inject what I consider to be basic humanity in recognizing that this person is there because there was injustice, because there was harm done to them. And so that legislation, I think, is important. It's as important as any bill that I had go across my desk. Mm-hmm. I regret that it is not as prevalent as it was intended. It certainly isn't viewed like the Charter or some of the other additions that we have seen to the criminal justice system. And it's 
it, it's subject to human frailty and interpretation like anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because as I was reading it um, this morning, we, we do some victims rights work as well. And one thing that we have come to see is that crowns don't see it as anything more than a suggestion. There, there's often the criticism that it didn't go far enough, that the remedies aren't clear, that there's no real clear path for the courts to um, recognize the rights that are within there. And of course, there's a division of powers problem that's going on as well because the provincial uh, crowns are handling federal legislation. Do you think that in retrospect, it could have went a little bit further? Sure. And I think it is, as you said, uh, subject to interpretation as is all new legislation. Right. Um, yes, it could have been more precise. We could have set out some of the remedies and people had advocated for that. But it, it's again back to this art of the compromise and getting it through Parliament was of real importance. We did massive consultation mm. uh, on that particular bill. And it, it is about trying to craft legislation that will have the most impact, the practical impact that we intended. It, it also comes back to judges and, and their sure. willingness to enforce and interpret and, and to do so in a, in a positive sense, not to dismiss it. You know, a, a much more, I'd say a less impactful, but a, a consideration around victims is the victim fine surcharges which again, because they were made mandatory, immediately irked a lot of the judiciary and others who think uh, that the exception should be the rule. In most cases, asking for a very small amount of compensation for a person who has had property uh, or have, have suffered harm that requires counseling or requires medical treatment, we're talking about a minuscule amount that attaches as part of the deterrent and part of the, the message that's being sent. That was being routinely, I mean, you've seen it in a courtroom, mm -hmm. waive the victim fine surcharge. That sends, a, a to me, a very negative um, and dismissive message to victims. And so we made it mandatory, but it was very quickly uh, rejected and struck down. And um, I, I regret that. I think, again, we might have crafted that legislation differently that perhaps allowed for the exception. But full discretion wasn't working uh, because it wasn't being attached at all. And, you know, there was the old blood from a stone. Well, this person's going off to jail uh, they'll have no means to pay that $100 to replace the coat that was destroyed while the person was assaulted. And I'm using that as a, perhaps in a, one example of a myriad of, of others. But that, to me, is a shortcoming still, that uh, victims don't receive compensation. Well, maybe this is part of the longer-term dialogue that's happening between politics and the courts, because now that there was... The pendulum swung to the other uh, way in that there was no more uh, discretion. And now it seems as though new legislation is coming in with an exception. Uh, and maybe courts will be far more reluctant to grant everyone the same type of exception, knowing where it was before. Um, one question I had about the, um, the Victims' Rights Act, it looks as though it's up for review in 2020. Uh, it seems built right within the legislation. We built that into the legislation. To um, any sense of what's happening with that? Is there a commission struck or anything? Uh, what, what do you hope to see come from that? Well, I, I think one of the concerns is that it, it is, like victim fine surcharges, quite routinely just ignored or underemphasized in our justice system. So part of it is just to breathe new life into it, revive it, uh, talk about its failings, but also its intent and, and what we're trying to do in crafting a more victim-inclusive system. And uh, some of the agencies, I think, are important advocates, but so should lawyers be. And uh, I don't know whether the government, the current government, is planning to have any sort of a, an actual study, a parliamentary study or otherwise, but it would, it would help mm -hmm. uh, for certain to, to bring it to greater effect because uh, I think the justice system overall would benefit from that. So my final question to you, Peter, uh, and uh, this is something I ask all my guests, but I have to tweak it a little bit for you. Normally I ask, if you were the Attorney General of Canada, what would you like to uh, to do? So uh, I would say, if you were Attorney General of Canada again, um, what is something that you would like to see happen? And maybe this ties into some of your present work. Yeah, a do-over. Um, <laughs> well, there was certain, I mean, I could reference a number of legislative initiatives. Uh, I wish, for example, that our government had gone down the road 
of decriminalizing marijuana rather than full legalization. I think that would have been a better fit. Uh, it was what the police were calling for. I think uh, we've gone down a very dangerous path and the social impacts are going to far outweigh any government revenues. But that's that's probably a topic for an entire show. <laughs> sure, yeah. I, I wish we had perhaps, this is a broad response to your question, been able to bring about a more streamlined uh, system that would have addressed some of the access to justice issues. Um, it might have perhaps preempted the Jordan decision which I think put more pressure uh, on our justice system, which I know wasn't Mr. Justice Moldaver's intent, but that was the upshot, is that it resulted in cases being dismissed because of the, the delay in the time frame, rather than trying to fix it structurally. And I think that that was an attempt by the court to punt it back to Parliament and say, you fix this complex mm. problem. Mm -hmm. It's your role. You know, even the judicial appointment process, I know, has been controversial. The Nadal decision, which I think is deeply misunderstood in terms of what happened and has resulted in Quebec being placed at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to those who aspire to the top court. Uh, if you go the federal court route, based on that decision, you're prohibited. It's like saying if you play in the American Hockey League and you come from any other province in Canada, you can go to the NHL. But if you're a Quebecer, you're stuck. You're not, you're not ever going to get to the top league. Again, I'm, I'm using a sports euphemism, but, and that, that issue is, of course, deeply personal. So, you know, I, I think if you don't have regrets or things that you would like to take another look at, uh, you haven't been proactive. You haven't seized the opportunity which politics affords you, which is for a window of time. You know, you're, you're there for a really augenblick, a very brief moment in time to try to do your best in sometimes pressure situations with a lot of competing interests to, to make good decisions that you hope will set the country up for success, set young people up for success, and hopefully lead to a system of justice that will breed more confidence, more participation, and, and a greater outcome for those who are in the system. Thank you very much. Uh, it sounds like you certainly haven't lost any steam in that regard. So uh, I, I wish you all the best of luck in continuing those efforts. And thank you for being on our podcast. That's a pleasure, Sean. Nice to be with you.